time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm great, thank you very much. Yeah, I think uh, hanging I had in there. a dear friend, uh, Bruce Hutchison, many, many years, lived till he was 91, still writing for the paper. And when people asked him how he was, his standard answer was, very well, considering the alternatives. <laughs> <laughs> that is an excellent answer, by the way. Excellent. Well, let's update people on a story that we have been talking about. Uh, it sounds like Nathan Cullen, the lands minister for BC, is having a bit of a change of heart here. Yeah, I think he's having some second thoughts. I mean, so on Tuesday, when you talked to him, he said, you know, um, I'm really keen to talk about these changes in the Land Act. Now, where do people get the idea the government's trying to hide something here? And he said, I am enthusiastic about it. And, uh, you know, we want public consultation on these changes and everything is hunky-dory. Well, uh, I talked to him on Wednesday. His office said, would I like to talk to the minister for a follow-up? I said, sure. They always maybe had something else to say. Turns out he did. The first thing Colin said to me was, you know what? I wish I'd been more proactive in involving the public. Oh. Like, we're going to have a public consultation on this ambitious plan to change the management of Crown land, and we're asking the public for feedback, but we didn't tell the public we were going to do that. So, yeah, he sort of wishes he'd gone out and I maybe put out a news release or even called a press conference and said, hey, this is a big deal and we'd like to know what you think. We're going to change the law this spring. We're going to go to a system where the 95% of the province that is crown land, that land will henceforth, if possible for that to be jointly managed on a consent basis with Indigenous nations. So it's a big change, potentially a huge change. He's got a consultation process going, but he only told the stakeholders about it. He didn't tell the public that we'd like to know what you think. Like, I mean, tell them directly. I guess he yeah. relied on the relied on the public to just sort of, you know, look around the Internet on a regular basis, idly search the government website and see what's new. Well, as you know, Simi, the only reason he's out talking about it at all this week is because a bunch of news organizations, including the Vancouver Sun, I found out about this and pointed it out, and the government had to respond. Okay. And so I'm curious as to why this is happening now. Maybe he's been listening to the criticism, but I also think the one of the most powerful arguments in this was the people who are going to get blamed here are the Indigenous groups. Yes, and he's conceded that point. And, and look, there was a backlash, and you got feedback. I did. The Global Mail did a piece on it, Justine Hunter, and she got feedback. So we all heard about it. But look, the real problem here, and it was flagged by Adam Olson of the Greens, and he said, look, when you do something like this, it's the Indigenous people that hear about the backlash. And Colin concedes that's fair comment. He said, it's true. You know, he said, he said if I screw up as a minister or if the government gets it wrong, well, that's fine. Blame the government. But he said, what well, unfortunately what happens is a segment of the public takes out its anger on Indigenous people. And he said, that's regrettable. He said, if there was any backlash to Indigenous nations, Indigenous leaders because of this, he takes full responsibility for it. And he said, you know, he was speaking with a, a sense of humility recognizing that 
you know, there was a mistake in not properly letting the public know what was happening. But the fallout on these things descends on Indigenous people, and that is more than regrettable. That's, it's hard enough to yes. move down the road to what the government is trying to do in terms of reconciling in, with Indigenous people. And he says we've got to get the process right and pretty much concedes that here they did not get it right. Okay, so what does that mean then in terms of changing the process? Well, it's interesting. He's back down there too. So when the government launched this consultation on these changes in the Land Act back at the beginning of January, it said the plan was to begin to, to take feedback up to the end of March, but to begin drafting the legislation in February before the feedback was in. So Cullen says that's a mistake too, and they're not going to do that. They are going to wait till all the feedback is in at the end of March and then begin drafting the legislation. So that's a better process. So I said, well, there's not an awful lot of time left in the legislature session after the end of March because the New Democrats are adjourning the House early this year, it being an election year. And he said, no, I still think we can get it done this spring. So... You know, it takes a while to write legislation. If they're not going to start writing it till the 1st of April, they've got till May 16th, so like six weeks, to get the bill drafted and in the House and passed. Uh, that's a pretty tight time frame, Simi. So I don't think the controversy is over here, but I do think the minister got it right by backing off and recognizing that he'd created a big problem, not least, but especially with Indigenous nations. Okay, well, that's that's good. Um, we'll see what happens here. But yeah. we still is there still an answer, though, on this whole consent issue, uh, whether or not that means, like, veto? Because I know people, people are very concerned about that. Well, yeah, everybody, I mean, I shouldn't say everybody, but I hear from a lot of people who say, if you're going to move to management of Crown land jointly with First Nations on the basis of them consenting, to a lot of people, that implies that First Nations have a veto over what happens. The minister said, no, that's not his reading of the law and the legal situation. He says consent is not the same thing as a veto. Um, that's going to be a subject for interesting debate. Um, people out there may want to thumb through the dictionary and see and the thesaurus and see what it says. But there's a legal distinction there, according to the minister. I think one of the things he'll be doing when this legislation is introduced, is explaining or trying to explain why consent and a veto are not the same thing. What a difference a year or two makes. We are back now with Vaughn Palmer for the Vancouver Sun. We're talking about the anniversary of decriminalization because, Vaughn, some of the comments coming out of this, uh, marking this moment, seem like, well, wait a minute, that's I don't remember you saying that before. No, it's, look, the first year... The results, I'd say even the advocates would have to admit, pretty mixed, and the death toll is worse than ever. So that's a challenge. The people said we should go this way. I was struck by the reaction of Kennedy Stewart, who's mayor of Vancouver. He's written a whole book on decrim, and he pretty much takes credit for having launched this thing. So he says, um, I don't think anybody really expected decriminalization to save lives. Excuse me? That's what I thought. So, I was like, so isn't my that colleague, why you, how you got people yeah. on board was that you yeah. were saving lives? Exactly. And my colleague, Katie DeRosa, has done a piece uh, for Post Media, and she's the one who got the Kennedy Stewart 
quote, but she also points out that on the day decriminalization was launched last year, the NDP minister and the federal minister both called it bold action to save lives. That's how they got the public lining up behind this experiment. It was going to save lives. Well, the, the death toll is worse than ever. So I think that's the real problem out there for advocates is they're having to shift their ground and say, well, no, it wasn't really about saving lives because it didn't. It was about reducing the stigma of open drug use and reducing the stigma of taking drugs and being an addict. Well, that's going to be a harder sell with the public, especially now that the courts have stood in the way of Premier David Eby's well-intentioned effort, in my view, to try to restrict open drug use because of the backlash it's creating in communities. This is this is a very hard sell with the public. And the courts and the advocates are not making it any easier by their total inflexibility on the efforts by a government that wanted decriminalization, Simi, I think with the best of intentions, a government that has tried to bring the public along and is finding it harder than ever. But the claim that, oh, we never said it was going to save lives, like that just isn't borne out by the record at all. It's right there in our archives and our files, radio, TV, and print. We know what they said when they launched it. That's why they did it. And now they're having to scramble to explain why it didn't happen, saving lives. Yeah. And when you think about how quickly people did and were brought along on an issue that five years ago, people would have said, no way, you can't make this happen. Saving lives was really the only reason why so many people signed up for this are yeah, willing I mean, to even think about it. Yeah. You know, Stewart's book is interesting, right? I mean, he does give a history of this, and the city of Vancouver launched it, and then the province took it over, and he's quite clear that Justin Trudeau originally opposed this, and uh, Patty Haidu, his minister, came around on it, and John Horgan originally opposed this, and he came around on it. I mean, it was a tough-selling job, but, of course, when you hit the first anniversary and the numbers, the death toll is so bad people are going to go back and look and see what they said at the beginning and what went wrong. So some of the advocates have said, well, what went wrong was you were also supposed to provide treatment and recovery services, and you're not doing that. And some people say, well, you should provide more safe supply and more safe injection sites. That's a fair debate. And I think those are points that the government is going to have to address. But to say we didn't sell this on the basis that it was going to save lives. Look, that's it's just not disingenuous. The truth. They yeah. did sell it on that basis. Yeah, that's disingenuous. Uh, I also wanted to get an update on. I know we were getting some uh, kind of pre 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 election announcements, right? The election's not till yeah. October. Uh, what did the BC Greens have to say yesterday? Uh, Sonia Fristenau is switching ridings. So she's represented the Cowichan Valley in the legislature. She uh, lived up and around uh, Shawnigan Lake uh, for a time. She led the fight up there, successful to uh, protect uh, basically the lake from a plan to mine a quarry up there. That's the issue that got her elected. Two terms as MLA for Cowichan Valley, and she's moving to Victoria. If she wins, she'll be my MLA here in Victoria Beacon Hill, it's a very bold move, I have to say. I mean, she acknowledged it as much. She said, people tell me I can't win there. It's been an NDP riding almost forever. It's currently represented in the legislature by cabinet minister, Grace Lohr, who you interviewed this week. 
but she's doing it. She says uh, this is uh, where her history is and her base, and she's got one of her children is in UVic, and she wants to be closer. So she's running as the green candidate in Victoria Beacon Hill. I think an uphill fight, but she said people have underestimated me before, and they have. Okay, how challenging is this? Like that that particular uh, riding, can you give us a bit of a history? Uh, yeah, so um, the New Democrats lost the riding in the 2001 election where they were swept away everywhere in British Columbia except for two ridings in Vancouver. So that was the one where they were absolutely crushed and there was a big vote split with the Greens. But other than that, Victoria Beacon Hill has been NDP territory for decades. Uh, Even when they weren't forming government, they won Victoria Beacon Hill. until she retired at the last election, the MLA was Carol James. For here, Grace Lore is her successor. She's new to politics, but she's already made it to the cabinet table. So, you know, I think it's an uphill fight, the Greens. Uh, but it is true what, what uh, Firstino said yesterday. The New Democrats pulled out all the stops to defeat Sonia Firstino in the 2020 election. They sent everybody into her riding to try to beat her, and they couldn't do it. So she is a presence, and she's a good campaigner and an effective MLA. So it's not hopeless. But it's risky. It's an uphill fight. Yeah, it's risky. Like, why do this? Well, she says it's not because they changed the boundaries of her riding. They they kind of split her riding in two. So... Electoral Boundaries Commissions do this, and the Electoral Boundaries Commission did a lot of meddling the last time. There are a lot of MLAs that are scratching their heads over why they changed the name of their riding and why they moved the boundaries and why they created some of these bizarre seats. The politicians don't get into second-guessing boundary commissions because it's a slippery slope. Uh, Everybody will have an issue they want to change, so they tend to leave it alone, but She's one of the MLAs where they did actually pull the rug out from under her and change her riding. She says that's not why she's she's switching, but I do think that must have been what opened her mind. And she went, well, you know, am I going to stay here or am I going to just go look for a new riding? And she's decided to look for a new riding. Interesting. All right, Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye, Simi. It's Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. 